Talk about finishing, something finishing well. That's our, that's our theme here. I heard somebody say a long time ago, life is a marathon. It's not a, it's not a sprint. And this morning we want to continue this conversation on how to run the race of life in such a way that you finish well. So many people, and King David is our exhibit A of this, begin, begin well. You're, you're flying down the road of life. It's a beautiful summer day. The window's down. Wind is flying through your hair. Can you picture it? You know, you got a, you got a good road trip song on the radio. What's a good road trip song that you'd have playing? Down the, you take, I don't know if I know that one. Take it easy. Come on, give me a road trip song. The entire Hamilton soundtrack said, DJ, I like that. All right. I want to be the one in the room. You know, I, I, I uh, rapped Hamilton a couple months ago, and I didn't realize how slowly they did it. I did it much faster, and I thought much more proficiently than Lynn, well, oh man, just saying. Uh, so... Uh, so you got a, ro a road trip song playing. The road is to yourself. Beautiful scenery. You got a Mountain Dew in the drink cup. Are you with me? This is the time of year you're doing that, and all of a sudden you swerve and miss the curb, or you miss the deer, or you hit the pothole, and there you are in the ditch. You're on your side. You're mangled up. The car's banged up. Smoke is coming out of the engine, and this is what many people do with their lives. They do what David did. They screw up their lives with an affair or some sexual sin. They succumb to some sort of a addiction. They refuse to learn discipline. And, and so they can't keep a job. Or they can't hold their marriage together. And that's the thing about life we have to appreciate. Now last week we said life is short. And that's, that's true. But life is also long enough that if you screw up, you are going to feel the pain for a long, long time. Don't you think it would be better? It would be better to learn the lessons of how to do it well. In Psalm 71, written by David, in the back half of his life, is a great tutorial for how to finish well. There are these truths that we need to hang on to in life, as we go through life, that we should embrace and just make our peace with. And if we do, we're going to get through life successfully. Now, we covered three last week. We said uh, that, first of all, we need to accept the fact that we cannot make sense of life, we cannot navigate life's many twists and turns without Christ. That was the first thing David taught us. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. Jesus said, we talked about this last week, apart from me, you can do only a few things. Can we get a gong show buzz here, please? You guys are way out of practice with this. We, we started to get it right back at Evergreen. Let's give me a buzz. Bah. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's proof to me that Christianity is true because anybody that talks that way is either a lunatic or they're telling the truth. They're a Lord. I'll follow Jesus. I'll take his word on it. The second truth we learned last week was that this world is shattered by sin and, and there's no living in it without suffering. So David, we see in the psalm, is besieged by, by enemies. His family is falling apart. His own son wants him dead because he wants his throne. Being chased by King Saul 
was not nearly as bleak as this. And there, there are many modern day Americans, and sadly a lot of Christians that go along with this, that believe we somehow have a right to a pain-free pass through life. And so when something bad happens, a global pandemic or something, something odd like that, suddenly we get our world rocked and we, and we cop an attitude with God and we rage at the universe. And we said last week, look, you don't have to like this truth, but you've got to make your peace with it. Jesus did not say, pick up your pillow and follow me. What did he say? Pick up your cross and follow me. And the last time I looked, the cross was an instrument of pain. The third truth follows hard on this second truth, that life is short and comes in, you remember, seasons. And people who are caught off guard by this most obvious of truths will not finish well. They'll start seeing their beauty fade or their strength diminish and they'll, they'll start to, to fall into depression. Midlife crisis, here I come. Watching friends and family die will fill them with fear or bitterness. In contrast with this, the great evangelist from the, the 18th century, John Wesley, he said of the early Methodists, our people die well. Isn't that a curious tribute to the power of Christianity? To say our people die well. David in Psalm 71, knowing that, that old age is fast approaching, he doesn't cop an attitude with God that this is the way it is. Instead, he seeks God, he prays to God, he asks, God, would you come near to me now? I'm going to need your help. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. That's what he cries out to God. And so that's an important truth to learn as well. Now, that's where we left off last week. You were all depressed when you turned off the, the live stream and went about your day. And you're probably wondering, is there any good news in this psalm? Well, thankfully, these last two points that we're going to make today more than make up. For, uh, for what we've heard in the first part of the psalm. Here's truth number four uh, as, as we finish up Psalm 71. God created me with a purpose, and I should strive to live missionally all my days. God created me with a purpose, and I should strive to live missionally all my days. I'm sure some, uh, some of you were, you know, were, were wondering about what was going to happen with, with David's life. But what, what happens here after his great sin is, is we realize he's given another chance to, to get it right. David wants much more from life than, than, than for God to just be with him until his life ends. Look at verse 17 where David says, Oh God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O oh God, do not forsake me. Okay, that's truth three. Truth number three, but here comes truth number four. Until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Do you see this? David wants much more from his old age than just a comfortable ride and a smooth landing. He wants his life to count for something. He wants to make a difference for God and for his kingdom. And that's what we mean by thinking missionally. As I've studied King David over the years, I am convinced that there is no one in the Bible outside of Christ himself who had more vision than David did. We know that he fell in love with God very early in life as a, as a pup. In fact, in verse 6, he says, Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. His poor mom, he's probably singing Baby Shark in the womb, right? That, can you see that? 
All of a sudden, his mom's looking down, and she's, she's hearing, I've got to join, 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 What? His mom's going, what's this kid all about? From, from his love and study of Scripture. And, and remember for David, the only parts of the Bible that David had were the first five books. The books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. That's all the Bible he had. And yet from his study of Scripture early on, David caught a glimpse of what God's plan was for the earth and for Israel and for his own life. First he saw that God's heart beat with love for the entire earth. God wasn't just Israel's God. wasn't just a tribal deity. Dave, David would have read Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, there it is. God created the entire cosmos, all people, Adam and Eve. We're not Jews. They represented all of humanity, which God loved. Chances are good that Adam and Eve were actually people of color. Get your brain around that one. Huh? And David would have read Genesis 12, verse 3, where God said to Abraham, In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so this global vision begins to fill David. And you, and you see it in his psalms. Psalm 22, verse 27. David writes, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. I promise you, friends, whatever's going on with the pandemic, this global affliction, it is happening. God is allowing it to move us toward this place where all the families of the earth will worship before Him. David wrote in Psalm 58, verse 11, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And seeing that God raised up Israel to, uh, to, through Abraham to bring a blessing to the earth, it dawned on David that what, what God was doing through Israel was not for her sake alone, but for the nations. But for Israel to have global influence, well, that meant to David that Israel had to be strong. And God promised that in Deuteronomy. You shall be the head, not the tail. That also meant, as David thought about it, that Israel needed to have a strong, glorious capital city. And God promised that in Deuteronomy. A central place where all the Jews would come to worship. God tells them, I don't want you offering your sacrifices just at any old place. I'm going to bring you to a place. And David saw that they would need to have a vibrant worship life built on the Word. And a, and a vibrant worship life meant that they would need to have their own building. Huh? Huh? They needed to have a magnificent, awe-inspiring temple in David's mind. And a trained priesthood. And a growing catalog of songs and music. And then from this position of prominence and power, Israel would become God's ambassador to the nations. From the very beginning of his, of his young adulthood, as he's tending his father's sheep, this vision was gestating and growing inside of David. And when at last he, he became king at the age of 30, this vision just burst into glorious life. I think that David's vision comes down to three words. Battle, build, and bless. He, first he had to battle. He had to secure Israel from, from all her enemies. And there were many. Philistines and Ammonites and Sidonians. Oh my. And, and all of them took turns knocking Israel around. And, and, and so David said enough of that. He was the mightiest warrior of his time. And under his leadership each of these enemies were brought to heel. 
But then Jerusalem was the most strategic site in all the land. It was this glorious place built on hills. And so early on, David battled to secure Jerusalem. And then David went to work on building. Building up Jerusalem, building up Israel's infrastructure, drawing up plans for the temple. Then blessing, battle, building, blessing. A time of enjoying what God had done by creating a strong priesthood and a worship life. I mean, why did David write so many psalms? He is the, the vintage warrior poet, you know, like Aragorn in The Lord of the Rings. He's the guy who could, who could hold a guitar and a sword in, in both hands at once. And he wanted to leave for his people not only freedom, but a legacy of songs that would last for generations. I would say David succeeded at that, wouldn't you? David was driven by vision, by missional thinking. And like we said last week, the great shame of his sin is that all this momentum that God had worked up in his life, all of this fell off the tracks, derailed when David sinned, like that train in Arizona that collapsed the other day. So much was frittered away. Dear ones, listen to me. Sin will never aid your cause. Learn this from David. Sin will never make you stronger. Sin will never make you better. There was an old Puritan named Richard Sibbs. He said to enter into sin is to enter into a declining state. Don't ever say, well, I, I, I just got this little thing over here. It'll be like frosting, a little, little place of pleasure for me. Don't go there. The moment you enter into sin, you enter into a declining state. Let David's life be a warning to you. Now the miracle of, of, of David's life, of God's grace in his life, and we see this in Psalm 71, is that David could not stop thinking missionally. He did not want to stop serving God. So even to old age and gray hairs, O oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation. God is ask, uh, David is asking God for one more chance to make it right and to make it ends. And that's how you finish well. You think missionally all your days. You wake up in the morning and you say, Lord, help me to use this strength you have given me today, this health you have given me today, this time you have given me today, and help me to serve you with it. And when we left uh, Connecticut, Janice and I, that woman in the back, when we left Connecticut a few years ago and moved to California, my prayer, after a good 20-year run in Connecticut, my prayer was, Lord, make me more fruitful in whatever years I have left than all the years that have come till now. That was my prayer. Because, you know, when you hit your 50s, you know, and you look at the hourglass, guess what? <laughs> There's more sand at the bottom than it's on the top. And early on, I read Psalm, uh, uh, Psalm 71, early in my sabbatical. And when I read David's prayers, my heart jumped within me. I want to pass on your word to another generation. It was so cool to see what God started to do in California. Suddenly, I'm, I'm being a pastor in Hollywood to a lot of young and aspiring actors and young producers and directors and getting into conversations and praying with many. Suddenly, I'm an interim pastor and working with churches and and, and then this crazy church in Maryland came calling. What, what's up with that? And uh, filled with young millennials. Isn't God way cool? I'm going to write a psalm one day that begins that way. God, you are way cool. Andrew, you want to get working on a song? That be... No? No? Okay. Okay, just wondering. What's cool about our church, talk about thinking missionally, 
is that we're doing that. We're doing that. The lights are going on all over the place. Even in the midst of a global pandemic, we are thinking about our purpose as a church. We're asking the right questions. I believe we're praying the right prayers. We're reading the right books. We're working on the right projects. One of the top priorities for this year was to establish a new mission statement to rally around. And guess what? In the midst of a global pandemic, we now have one. And it's a good one. Oh, this thing is like the meatiest barbecue rib you have ever found on a plate. This is good. Write down our new mission statement at the bottom of your sheet, everybody, right now. Because you've all memorized it, I know. You've already committed it to heart. You know exactly what it is. Any takers? Making disciples, connecting communities, growing the body of Christ. Write that down. I want you to know it. Making disciples. Say it with me. Making disciples, connecting communities, growing the body of Christ. A good mission statement can do a number of things for you. First, it can motivate you. It can get you out of bed in the morning. Then it can help you evaluate, help you look in the mirror and see what you got to work on. And a good mission statement can keep you on task when the road gets, gets tough. It'll push you through the heat of the day. This statement, it, it, it checks all those boxes. Making disciples, connecting communities, growing the body of Christ. There is meat on this bone past the barbecue sauce. Say that with me. Past the barbecue sauce. Pa ketchup? No. Thinking missionally, though, uh, my friends, isn't just for the congregation. It's for you and me individually as well. In spite of life's twists and turns, in spite of life's suffering, in spite of life's shortness, we're not here accidentally. You're not here on this planet right now because of unguided forces of, of naturalistic evolution randomly plopped you here. That's not why you're here. You and I are, are, are here today. Because a good and eternal God said, let there be Bear, let there be Scott, let there be Lowry. That's why we're here. And God put us here with a purpose. He loaded each of you up individually with gifts and talents and abilities that he wants you to put to use now in growing his goodness, his beauty, his love, his truth upon the earth. And you're to do that forever, however long you're here. If God gives you 20 years, then do that. Grow His beauty, His goodness, His love, His truth on the earth. If He gives you 30 years, do that. If He gives you 50 or 60 or 70, advance God's kingdom somehow, some way. If you read uh, Rick Warren's great book, The Purpose Driven Life, perhaps you remember the first sentence. It's not about you. It's about God. And dear ones, if we learn this and start living this, we're going to experience more peace and joy in our lives than anybody else can. Well, David's not done yet. He has one final truth to teach us here about finishing well. Truth you've got to learn and cling to and grow in until we breathe our last. And here it is. I live eternally now. I live eternally now. And so I can live with hope all my days. I live eternally now. And so I can live in hope all my days. Look at verses 20 through 24. As David comes down the home stretch of this psalm, he says, You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you with the heart for your faithfulness, 
O oh my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also which you have redeemed. And my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long. For they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. Here's yet another example of why David was a man after God's own heart. He believed in God so strongly. He, he clung to him so firmly that he knew, however bleak his life was, that as long as he held on tight to God, things would end well. Even though he knew he'd made a colossal mess of things, he had tried to sabotage, sabotage all the good things that God would do in his life. Even though all this had happened, yet God was loving enough, David believed, and powerful enough to turn even this disaster around for good. David believed it long before Paul wrote it, that all things work together for good to those that love the Lord. In the early days of uh, our sabbatical, uh, it was looking pretty grim for a while for Janice and I. Janice got hurt right away. She couldn't work, no income. I hadn't written one word yet. We had no community, no friends. I was in despair. It was the first time in my life that I'd ever experienced a genuine panic attack. And I was on an early prayer walk, and I read this psalm, Psalm 71. That's why I couldn't wait to preach it. And I, and I got to this part, You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. And at once, that same hope that filled David built on the trust he had for the Lord, that hope washed into my heart. And I memorized these words. You will revive me again. You will bring me up again. You will comfort me again. And whenever that panic arose, I would just say those words. You will revive me again. You will bring me up again. You will comfort me again. And I held those words up like a shield. And a short time later, Jesus began to work his magic in us. And started to do his thing. And we were off and running on what become a, became an incredible adventure. For David, his hope had two strands to it. It had a temporal hope and an eternal hope. He hopes that God will restore him to the kingship. That his son Absalom will be brought down. And he'll be given a chance to make things right. He's seen God do enough miracles in his life. He has every reason to think that God will do it again. But even if that didn't happen, David knew that the Lord would revive him and would bring him up again and would comfort him again in eternity. He didn't grasp resurrection the way you and I can on this side of the empty tomb, but David believed in it. He wrote in Psalm 16 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You're not going to leave me to rot in the grave. And then in Psalm 23, what did he write? I will dwell in the house of the Lord, what? Forever. Have you ever really let that sink into you? That you are living eternally right now. Right now. Death sucks, no doubt about it. The Bible says it's the final enemy, but it doesn't end me. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5. For me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain, Philippians 1. How, how is it gain? Because I desire to depart and be with Christ, he says. I don't stop living when I die. How's that for a weird sentence? Say that out loud. I don't stop living when I die. 
Jesus said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. We live eternally now. And once that hope starts to fill you and stir inside of you, you're going to look at everything in the temporal level in a different way. And you're going to have a new power and new freedom in your life to, 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 to face all those things going on at the temporal level. Because of this reason, Christian hope, it's not this wispy little thing. People think that hope is kind of this, this, this kind of vanilla thing, this Pollyannish thing. Well, I hope things turn out. That's not Christian hope. Our hope has meat to it. Christian hope is the ultimate act of defiance against evil. Did you know that? Here's one thing. Christian hope is, is the ultimate act of defiance against evil. What we're seeing today in the country with all these, these protests that started well, these peaceful protests, but now they've been filled and filled up and infiltrated with this angry mob, these ugly mobs of angry brats, vandalizing property, canceling and doxing anybody they disagree with. You think that's hope? That sound like hope to you? That's hatred. Ignorant hatred. You want to see hope at work. You want to see true defiance against, against evil. Watch a video of the young John Lewis back in 1965 when he crossed the Pettus Bridge. And take a look at that entire movement back then that was pushing back at the horrific evil of full-on racism. I caught part of Lewis's funeral service the other day, and I've never quoted Bill Clinton in my life in a sermon. But in his eulogy, President Clinton said John would not believe in canceling people. He'd believe in converting them. I said, that's good. That's good. That's hope. That's good hope. Hope is defiance against evil, causing good trouble, as Lewis was known for saying. It's standing and singing Wahoo Dory when the Grinch steals all your Christmas presents and you sing it out loud so he can hear you. That's hope. Yes? Grinch, you don't get to have the last laugh over me. You don't get to bring me down to your level. You can steal Christmas, but you can steal my present, but you can't steal Christmas. Wahoo Dory! It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing before King Nebuchadnezzar and singing Wahoo Dory to him and saying, hey, King, even if, even if our God doesn't save us from the fire, we're not going to bow to you. Wahoo Dory! Everybody say, Wahoo Dory! It's, uh, <laughs> don't sing it, just say it. <laughs> Choosing to live eternally now. And hope is a choice. Look what David writes in verse 14. But I will hope continually. And I will praise you yet more and more. Hope is a declaration of God's sovereignty over the earth. That's why I love that last song we sung. To wake up in the morning and decide afresh. That there is nothing more powerful on this earth. Than our God. And he will fulfill his purposes. For this earth and for me. Can you wake up in the morning and read the latest news on, on the coronavirus? And I know we do that every day. We check it out. Can you do that and say, Wahoo Dory, instead of letting it drag you down? The Old Testament Jews had this strange way of occasionally talking about calamity when it arose. When an army of locusts arose and ate up their harvest one year, the prophet Joel called that army of locusts. Anybody know what he called them? God's army. That's weird. 
when the Babylonians came in and invaded Jerusalem and took the people into exile, including Daniel, as Daniel was writing about it later on, he said, God gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. God gave the city into the power of the Babylonians. If one of the prophets were writing to us today, they might speak of the coronavirus as what? God's coronavirus. Huh? This kind of speech is not telling us that, that God is causing evil. It's just telling us that God is more powerful than evil. Everything is father-filtered, as Rick Warren once said. doesn't mean we throw away our masks. That's not what we're saying. doesn't mean we act irresponsibly. doesn't mean we stop trying to find a vaccination, please God, or live passively. It's simply choosing to live in hope. This is God's virus. He's got a plan for this earth, and he's working it out as we speak, and we need to trust him and know that our lives are securely in our good shepherd's hands. Whatever happens. Living eternally now was modeled by a good friend of mine back in Connecticut. Her name was Sharon. She was a dear older saint. And in the last days of her fight against uh, cancer, as they were trying a new and aggressive form of treatment with her, I'll never forget, we were around uh, her bed praying for her before she started her treatments. And Sharon smiled, and she looked up, and she said, you know, either way, however this turns out, I win. If the treatment works, I get a few more years with my family and friends. If the treatment doesn't work, I get to be with Jesus. And in a few years, be with my family and friends. Either way, I win. She sung out Wahoo Dory to cancer. I think that's what Wesley means when he said, uh, our people die well. Because we live eternally now, and our hope is secured firmly to Jesus. We know there is nothing that can ultimately defeat us. We've seen the end of the story. We know, who, we know who writes the end of this story. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. And, and, and we've looked at the end, and, and guess who wins? Jesus does. And all those who are on Team Jesus with him, they'll win as well.